Holidays often bring celebrations, but they also bring challenges and anxiety for many people. So the question is, can we be grateful in the midst of anxiety? I think we can, and as leaders, if we're not experiencing anxiety, we can actually be a safe haven for those who are. Today, I'm going to take us back to a previous episode where I had a wonderful opportunity to discuss these topics with a top 100 influencer, Chester Elton. As we approach the Thanksgiving holiday here in the U.S., I am reflecting on how grateful I am for so many things in my life. I hope you also have an opportunity to reflect on what you're most grateful for and that my conversation with Chester is a meaningful one for you. Hey everyone, I'm Jeff Hunt and this is the Human Capital Podcast produced by Goalspan. My quest on this podcast is to uncover the deeply human aspect of work. One of the ways we can truly value human capital is to unpack and understand employee mental health and well-being. Healthy work environments include having a deep understanding of the nuances of anxiety and how it affects both individuals and organizations. The opposite is also true. If we don't recognize or deal with anxiety in a healthy way, the costs are high, a staggering $40 billion a year in the US. Today, we have a guest who's gonna help us shed some light on this topic. We get to talk about strategies that lead to work environments with the best chance of reducing workplace anxiety. We will discuss what the causal factors of anxiety at work are, and how we can create cultures that combine high productivity and psychological safety. My guest is Chester Elton, who is a guru in this space, if I may say so myself. Chester has spent two decades helping clients engage their employees in organizational strategy, vision, and values. He is the author of Anxiety at Work and Leading with Gratitude. And he's a member of the Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches, an executive coach himself, keynote speaker, and the founder of the Find Your Gratitude community. Welcome, Chester. Hey, thanks so much for the invitation, Jeff. It's going to be great to be with you here today. Well, I can start us off by saying, having just read your book and finished it last weekend, I can say it's excellent. Thank you very much. Yeah, so I just so appreciate this resource that you're bringing to the world of work. And actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna read the full title because it's worth mentioning. It's Anxiety at Work: Eight Strategies to Help Teams Build Resilience, Handle Uncertainty, and Get Stuff Done. <laughs> and so we're gonna unpack this book, but before we do, let's jump back to the beginning of your career. Was there one person or event that inspired you to ultimately get into this space? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's really interesting. Um, my career, I grew up in sales. I always loved sales. You know, I was very service oriented. You're solving people's problems. And to me, there was something magical, almost spiritual when you came to a, an agreement and somebody actually gave you uh, cash. <laughs> you know, that was that was the ultimate affirmation that your product was valuable, you know. Um, so I was working for a company, a recognition company out of Utah, and the CEO at the time was a guy named Kent Murdoch, uh, recently um, anointed as the CEO, and he and I had a nice relationship. I was running a sales ter territory out here in, in central New Jersey, 
and I'd been doing some projects. Our, our company was basically a service award company, and we were starting to expand into some other things. And I did a project with a consulting firm uh, for a pharmaceutical company. I, in New Jersey, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a pharma company. <laughs> and uh, we had a wonderful engagement. You know, they had all this strategy, they had all this philosophy. It, it wasn't just about a uh, a recognition platform or a recognition program. It was really about impact and so on. So I, I called Kent and I said, hey, Kent, um, I engaged with this consulting company and they sent me a book that outlines their strategy that, that makes them thought leaders in their space. And I said, gosh, you know, at the time, uh, the company was 70 years old. We had all kinds of great data, but we were kind of the, the greatest little company that nobody had heard of. We kind of liked being, you know, behind the scenes kind of. So on. And I said, you know, Kent, no one has written a definitive book on employee recognition that leads to employee engagement. If we were to write that book, we would be the thought leaders and my job would be so much easier because people would then call me for advice instead of me calling them and saying, hey, you need my advice, right? <laughs> as, as salespeople do. And he says, oh, I love that idea. Well, go ahead, write the book. And I said, Kent, I don't think you understood what I just said. Like we, as the company, like you, write this great book and then I benefit from this book, being the salesperson. And he said, you know what, Chester, you're a smart guy. Figure it out. Wow. Yeah. What a great challenge, right? So, so I, I thought, okay, well, he's the CEO. He said I should write a book. I should figure this out. So I, I start, you know, over the next year, titles and chapters and what would this mean? What would that mean? And, and he calls me back and he says, I've been thinking about that book. And I think, I think you should write it. I just hired a writer. His name is Adrian Gostick. Introduce yourself and see what happens. Sure enough, at the annual sales meetings, Adrian grew up in Canada. I grew up in Canada. We had that hockey thing going. And um, we've been fast friends ever since. 20 years down the road, we've left that company. We're on our own. We have our own consulting and training uh, company. We've written 14 books. Uh, as I work was our 14th book. Several were New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers. We've sold I think it's 1.6 million copies. They're in like 30 languages. So yeah, is, is there that moment? That was my moment. You're a smart guy, figure it out. Isn't that great? That's so great. It just shows you how one person can have such an effect. Oh yeah. And, and he supported me. He said, by the way, I know you're not a writer. I've hired a writer. Well, they, he made it possible. You know, great leaders, they remove obstacles. Biggest obstacle was, I think I was a B student in English if I was lucky. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, I go to my high school reunions, they go, you're a best-selling author? I go, well, I'm a co-author. My, my co-author is really the writer. They go, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> now I believe you, right? <laughs> Let's talk about this in a little bit more pragmatic terms. I want to jump into the book and have you set the table for us on workplace anxiety? How prevalent is it today? And what problems result when it's not addressed? Sure. Great, great question. You know, Jeff, it's really interesting. For 20 years, Adrian and I have been studying workplace culture, you know, leadership teams and so on. What, what makes for a healthy culture? Well, when COVID hit, it was really interesting that um, you can't have a healthy culture, a productive culture, or what we call an all-in culture if people are suffering from anxiety or, or, or mental illness or just out and out stress. So when COVID hit and everybody locked down, our publisher called us and said, look, you've got time. <laughs> what are you guys working on? Because <laughs> we had just released 
leading with gratitude in, in just in time for COVID and that did very well for like three weeks and then it kind of fell <laughs> off the end of the table. Uh, so Adrian had actually, actually been working with his son, Anthony, on this. Anthony had suffered from anxiety from an, a very young age. And he kept saying, look, my generation, this is all we talk about. You oldies, you never talk about it. I'm telling you, this is a big deal. So they brought me in as, you know, being the, and, and we'd always been Gostick and Elton, right? And except for this book is Gostick and Elton and Gostick. Mm, Anthony is a millennial, had us interviewed dozens of millennials for this subject. And this is where the data set the table for you. It became really obvious that we needed to do something about it. Pre-COVID, about 18% of um, employees said they suffered from some kind of anxiety disorder, mental health disorder, one in five, basically. Middle of 2020 survey, again, it jumps to 30%. That's a third of your workforce. Now, Anthony was right. Em employees in their 20s, it was 42%. Now you're approaching half your workforce. Incredible. And then when we looked at what happens, you know, when you don't feel safe talking about it, 50% um, of millennials and 75% of Gen Z or Gen Z, we're Canadians, we say Z, right? Um, said that they had recently left a job for a mental health issue. Well, you know, we know that turnover is expensive. We know that finding employees and good employees, once you find them, you want to keep them. So why are people quitting? Like, why are they quitting their jobs? And this was the number, Jeff, that was shocking. Only 10% of employees said they felt safe talking about it. Only 10%. That means 90% are like, there's no way I'm going to admit that I'm suffering for any kind of disorder, that I'm stressed, that I've, you know. And, you know, my generation is... We never talked about it. In fact, if you ever did talk about it, it would end your career. You know, our generation is, you got a problem, rub some, rub some dirt on it, get back in the game. You know, we'd play football, you'd get knocked out, everybody laughed, they'd give you smelling salts and say, how many fingers am I holding up? Close enough, go back. Well, it's a whole different ball game to use the you know, football analogy. <laughs> and, and this generation is gonna save a lot of lives because what happened in our generation, ulcers, dysfunctional relationships, divorces, right? So it was really interesting. It really became apparent on our work and culture that we had to address this issue. And, and that set the table. Is there a need for it? Absolutely. Is there a stigma attached to it? It's still incredible. So we talk about leaders, three things, normalize the confirmation, conversation, destigmatize mental health, and be empathetic. So long answer to a very good question. Hopefully that sets the table for, for your listeners. It does. And by the way, those three things are just the right things to do anyway, right? <laughs> yes. You know, we, we, we laugh that our work always comes back to common sense that is uncommonly practiced. <laughs> so true. So true. There's different ways that employees can experience anxiety or, or things that contribute to anxiety some of those things are company contributed elements and others are outside of the organization. And so I'd love for you to just spend a few minutes talking about some ways that companies either contribute to or help reduce anxiety that people are feeling. Yeah, you know, uh, as we looked at cultures and companies and organizations that are doing it well, uh, they had a, a lot of things in common. One is that they were great communicators. You know, they, we, you know, a lot of work has been done, Harvard uh, School of Business, you know, on, on psychological safety, which I think is great and, and really important. I think with COVID, we've had to up that 
game and raise that bar to emotional safety. So how do I make it emotionally safe to talk about? Um, first and foremost is if the leader is vulnerable and sets the stage. Uh, we've done a lot of work with Walmart Canada, 100,000 employees. The chief people officer there is Nabila Ekstalaban. I share her story because we have permission, right? Uh, she said, look, I introduced myself as a recovering workaholic that I put so much pressure on myself. I mean, my motto was there'll be time to rest when I'm dead, right? And was getting by on three, four hours sleep, never said no to any assignment, always delivered, rocket, you know, rocketed up the, uh, the promotion thing, cost her dearly emotionally. It, it, it cost her her marriage and so on. And, and, and so it's interesting. So she tells her story and becomes vulnerable and says, I don't want this to happen to you. This is what happened to me. Now, she got an interesting pushback that she shared with me. She said, well, easy, you know, one of the employees said, well, easy for you to say now, you're the chief people officer. All that crap that you said is crap. It got you where you are today. Would it have happened if you had taken this other road? And I loved her answer. She said, yes, I honestly believe I still would have made it here. It would have taken me longer. And that's a trade I would make. So that conversation alone now says, look, my boss has gone through this. She's sharing it with us. It's safe for me to share my story too. So that was number one. Does that resonate with Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that vulnerability is something that immediately starts building trust and it allows other people to share vulnerably about what's going on with them. And then we're actually treating people with compassion and empathy in the workplace. And then if I understand it correctly, they're actually willing to work harder and if, if necessary, but uh, do it in a way that's balanced and we're communicating openly and authentically, right? Yeah, and it's interesting because, you, you know, we're, we're in the world of soft skills. And so many managers say, look, a soft skill is a nice to have, not a must have. I mean, the hard skills are what I want. I want people that are hitting it hard every day, checking the boxes and getting stuff done. Right. And our answer to that is, yeah, listen, uh, not, a, not a great strategy. You'll get stuff done. You're going to burn people out. They're going to be overloaded. Trust me, you, you get the soft skills right, the hard skills follow. Sure. As the night follows day, right? So it's, it's, it's so interesting. Little Shakespeare there, right? Because that was the one class I got a good grade in. Um, and the whole idea here is, too, you say, they say, look, I, I, I don't have a degree in counseling and psychology and all this stuff. You're asking me to be vulnerable. Well, I, I don't have that disorder. So how do I do it? I, I don't want to be the father confessor. I just want to get stuff done. So we say, look, here's, here's, here's one thing everybody can do. When your employees finally feel safe enough with you to talk about mental health, to talk about anxiety, they know you don't have a degree. They know you're not a psychologist. Here's what they want you to do, and you can do it. They just want you to listen. Just listen. Let them tell their story. We can all do that. And that's the first step to empathy. You know, Brene Brown, who's written so wonderfully on this subject, says, look, um, be vulnerable, be empathetic. And it starts with listening, you know. Uh, I know that your problems are different than my problems, but I'm, I'm going to tell you a couple of things. You are not alone. We can work through this together. I am here. I will listen. We will figure this thing out together. You can do that. 
and that helps destigmatize. You know, if, if, if we said, look, I was out skiing and I wrenched my knee, it's, it's gonna, I, I, I literally need uh, 10 days to rehab. We'd say, absolutely. What are you kidding? Take care of yourself. Same person comes in and says, look, I am just mentally, physically, spiritually exhausted. I, I need some time off just to regenerate. We go, whoa, wait a minute. You knew this was a high pressure job. We told you it was going to be hard. Now you're telling me you can't do it? Eh, I feel like there's a little bait and switch going on here. Why don't you just, uh, why don't you just hunker down? You know, why don't, you, why don't you download a meditation app? I've heard that's great. Meditate a couple times a day. 10 minutes, not longer. We, we need you yeah. available. <laughs> um, you know, if, if, a fr- if you were to come to a, fr- a friend and, and confess that and they said, hey, download an app or just suck it up, buttercup, I don't think you'd be friends for very long. Now, I'm not saying as a manager, you have to be everybody's best friend. What I'm saying is you're going to lose those people. Now, now you got a real problem because now you're short-staffed. Now, what are you going to do? Spend a little time up front listening. Spend, invest a little time around normalizing the conversation, destigmatizing the conversation, and listening with a little bit of empathy. Easy to say, hard to do. It right? is. It's such a great reminder, though, because it's really what people want most, isn't it? Is just to be listened to. Yeah. Is my voice heard? Does my opinion matter? You know, we talk about healthy cultures as a place where I believe where I, I believe what I do matters and I make a difference. And I always like to add to that. And when I make a difference, somebody noticed it and said, thank you. You know, as you know, in the eight strategies we talk about in the book, the eight strategies, gratitude. Yes, I love that. You know, and this is where the, the, the science became really interesting, Jeff, because, you know, you discover that the human brain is not wired to keep you happy. It's wired to keep you safe. That's why we look for danger everywhere. That's why, you know, we've got all these things, you know, it, it's, I, I joke with my son. I said, you know, every now and again, when your kids are crying in the back seat, take him out of the car seat and just snuggle him for a bit. Dad, that's not safe. I said, yes, I, I know that. I also want to point out the fact that, you know, you've been alive for 35 years. You've ridden in my car literally thousands of times. How many accidents have we been in? Granted, there is a chance it's, it's, almost the same chance as us getting hit by lightning. So don't dare take your kid out of the car seat. Now I know this is not good. Uh, this is not good advice. Take your kids out of their car seat. What I'm saying is, is that, you know, we're wired to keep ourselves safe, not happy. So one of the ways that you kind of rewire your brain is you say, I can't be in a state of anxiety and a state of gratitude at the same time. So instead of looking for all the danger, I'm going to take a minute and I look for all the things that are good in my life. I love this, this great quote from a guy named uh, Russell M. Nelson. He says, counting our blessings is far better than recounting our problems. I just love that advice. You can't be in that state all the time. I get that there's danger out there. Absolutely. You know what? There's also a lot of good things out there. Take it, take it, take a deep breath, count those for a minute, give your brain a break. Exactly. And um, we can return to that state as often as needed. And every time we return to that state of gratitude, it's a, it's a little stress reducer, isn't it? Yeah. And I think one of the big messages that we need to send to employees everywhere is, look, if you need some time, take some time. The biggest message is you're not alone. The, the biggest thing that happens is we, we start to uh, fall on, you know, crazy times. We're overloaded. We're anxious. We're, you know, we're not sleeping. We don't want to talk to anybody because we don't want to appear weak. I'll solve this on my own. No, 
I had a friend just the other day texted me and she says, we just, I just need to take a break and I just leave me alone. I'll, I'll be back in a couple of months. I don't deserve your friendship or your praise. Just let me work this out on my own. And it was so funny. We were texting and I went, nope, that's not the way friendship works. The way friendship works is you're in a deep, dark hole. I'm going to climb down in that hole with you to make sure you know you're not all alone. We can work through this together. The worst thing you can do. It, it's like, it's like, you know, in a restaurant, when you start to choke, they say, whatever you do, don't go off by yourself. Right. You know, choke in public. Exactly. Because if you really start to choke and you're all alone, there's no one there to put, you can't perform the Heimlich maneuver on yourself. <laughs> it takes two people. And, and, you know, the airlines, what do they say in a crisis? Put your mask on first, then go help other people. So all these analogies that I know you've heard a hundred times, the idea being is, boy, if you can get that message across that I will listen, I will care, and you are not alone, those are monstrous steps forward to creating a safe environment where, where people feel safe about talking. About yes. It. And we need to be reminded of those things a lot. You know, I, I, I don't know, just to really adopt them as a cultural, um, you know, attribute, we need to be reminded. Um, okay. So... I want to bring this to uh, the perspective of a manager for a minute. So I'm a manager and I notice one of my employees is, um, is anxious and it's manifesting itself maybe in a number of different ways in the work environment, but it's very clear to me. Is it ever okay to ask an employee if they have anxiety? No. <laughs> quick, quick, quick answer uh, to your question. And, and by the way, if you're a manager and you are noticing those things and you can detect that, good for you, because generally speaking, high performers in particular are really good about hiding it. You know, we've all got friends that have finally confessed that, look, I've, I, I've, I've, I've suffered from anxiety my whole life. And we think you're the last person, I would think, that's ever had a bad day in their lives, let alone suffer from anxiety. So we've developed some really great language around this and, and look for clues. We sometimes write it off as one off that so they're having a bad day, they're having trouble with their kid at home, whatever it might be. Changes in behavior, like you just mentioned, their work isn't up to their normal standard of excellence. They're um, maybe not participating as much as they used to. They're showing up late and they've never been late before. Those are clues. Instead of coming up and saying, by the way, I listen to Jeff Hunt's podcast and uh, you have all the signs, you're anxious, aren't you? <laughs> no. The language that we love is, I've noticed. You know what, Jeff? I, I, I've just noticed a couple of things. And you make it work-related. I've noticed you have a tough time getting your work, work in on time. Uh, you know, look, if you're overloaded, let me know so we can work things out. Everybody's doing more with less. Everybody's, you know, dealing with all kinds of restrictions. And are we in school? Or are we not in school? I, I really appreciate that. So is there anything I can do? Because I've noticed that. It isn't. And then as the conversation evolves, you say, and by the way, if there's anything else you need to talk about, know that I'm here. Know that, that you're not alone. Now, the language I've noticed is, is translated to those that hear it. And the translation is, I care. Isn't that interesting? When I say, hey, I've noticed, Jeff, this and this and this, the translation is, oh, they've noticed they, they care because they're paying attention to me and my work. So hopefully that's a tip that'll, that'll help you, you know, start the conversation in a really non-threatening way. Right? And once again, it goes back to people wanting to be seen and heard. And so that's a, a method, just like what you're saying, that you as a manager 
are seeing the employee and you're hearing them and you're not doing it in a, in a sort of insulting or invasive way. You're doing it in an invitational way. Yeah, yeah, you're inviting them in. It's, it's, it's a very soft invitation other than, wow, you have all the indicators. <laughs> you know, it's not a great way to start a conversation. Let's talk a little bit about the intersection of anxiety and performance management. Um, this is a, such a sensitive topic to so many people. And of course, I run a performance management company, but one of the things that is a good discipline in organizations is to assess performance regularly but there's dysfunctional ways to do that. So you have things like the broken dysfunctional annual performance review, but how can organizations create an environment that transforms that to, and what, what does it look like? Well, you know, I think this is something your company does really well. You know, you encourage check-ins, just regular check-ins. And it doesn't have to be the hour long, uh, uh, you know, you prepared for a week, bring in your PowerPoint, we'll put it up on the wall, you know, it's, it's check-ins, it's five, 10 minute check-ins. Hey, you got a minute? Uh, I just want to check in with you really quick. I know you're working on these three projects. How's that going? Uh, do you need any more resources? Uh, is there anything that's going to cause you to maybe miss your deadline? Um, what can we do to help? Uh, those kinds of things. Rather than, like you say, the, uh, the annual performance review at the beginning of the year, I give you your quota. And then the 12 months later, I check in and say, by the way, how'd that go? <laughs> you know, oh, well, wait, wait a minute. You're not the same person. Oh, yeah, that guy quit. You know. <laughs> um, so these regular check-ins are really important. And like I say, can be fairly informal. You know, I, I think you do need to have those formal check-ins as you profess as well, where we go through in detail and we've got our reports and we look at the data. Those informal check-ins though, hey, just, just check, how, how are you doing on this, this, and this? And by the way, how's the other stuff going? You know, I, I know, you know, we're coming to the end of the school year. Are you going to need some time for graduations and stuff like that? You know, you know enough about your employees. I'll tell you, the best leaders, Jeff, the best leaders know their employees' stories. How did you get here? You know, what are you hoping to accomplish here? And why? And then the best question is, and where do you want to go from here? Scott O'Neill, one of my favorite leaders of all time, he just uh, stepped down to take a break. He was the CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers in the NBA. And uh, one of the things he says is, know your employees' dreams and help them get there. He said, you know, you're going to have this conversation. One of your employees is going to say, you know what? I, I want to go to the moon. And you know what your job as a manager? Help them get there. Yeah, help them get there. You may not get there, but I got to tell you, who doesn't want to work for a guy that wants to help me get to the moon? We all want, you know what it is? It comes back to that gratitude thing. I want to know that you're cheering for me. And if you're not cheering for me, why? Yeah, why are you not cheering for me? I'm cheering for you, you know, sure. Talking a little bit more about that feedback and how important it is, why should we get rid of the sandwich approach? You know, when you're talking about feedback, I know you guys mentioned this in your book, but why is that not constructive, doing the sandwich approach, which <laughs> is an old teaching? Yeah, yeah. Good news, bad news, good news uh, kind of thing. Um, we, we used to laugh that um, we, we were doing this for the hospital. And uh, they talked about uh, bedpans, you know, that worst job in the hospital. You got to do it, right? And they talked about that sandwich approach. So, you know, it's, it's, it's beautiful bread, you know baked by an Italian artisan, a little bit of cheese and garlic on top, right? That's the bread. And then you put this crap in the middle. 
would you ever take a bite out of that sandwich? Say, well, it's crap in the middle. You go, yeah, but the bread. (laughs) (laughs) You say, yeah, um, still no. (laughs) I'm still not going to take a bite. I don't care how good the bread is. This idea that we sometimes surround horrible news. Uh, One of the great leaders that we studied, a guy named Gary Ridge, I'm actually going to spend some time with him next week in San Diego with WD-40. Yeah, he talks about that we don't make mistakes, we have learning moments. So literally, we have no crap. We just have learning. Anthony Gostick, you know, our uh, Anthony or Adrian's son said he's a scientist. He's studying DNA and genomes and all. He's a really smart kid. He said, you know, science is just failure with notes. It's just failure with notes. So this idea that we have problems to solve and we're going to solve the problems. You are not the problem. We have a problem. So when you take that and you have that philosophy and that culture, there is no crap. There's just opportunities to learn. Nobody feels bad about making a mistake. Now, you don't want to be making the same mistake 10 times in a row. That tells you something, right? We want to all pitch in and say, hey, what are we learning? How do we do it differently next time? How can we prevent it from happening again? Gosh, that's a culture where everybody feels safe. So yeah, there's no need for the sandwich approach because trust me, no matter how good that bread may taste, you put crap on it, nobody's taking a bite. Nobody. So at the end of the day, if I have feedback for an employee, it sounds like it's best to just approach them with that feedback in a way that hopefully they can hear. And I'm checking in with myself before I go deliver that to make sure that I'm not emotionally charged and that I'm in a good place. And then the likelihood that they will hear it and will end up with a productive conversation and a better outcome goes up, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I love the philosophy from the great executive coach, Marshall Goldsmith. He says, don't give feedback. That's in the history. That's in the past. Give feed forward. Here's what happened. Here's how we're going to deal with it going forward. So I'm going to give you feed forward. What's happened is that we can't change that. What we can change is how we react to it, how we correct it, and how we move forward. So yeah, it's a much healthier approach to any kind of situation. By the way, it works great with your kids too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah one is a, a- a backward looking punitive approach and one is a forward looking coaching developmental approach, right? Exactly. And that's a, that's a great word, coaching. Uh, you know, are you coachable? You know, cause we're going to coach you. And by the way, you're going to make mistakes, you know, and nobody's perfect, like nobody. And if they say they are, the one thing you know for sure is they're not telling the truth because nobody's perfect. What are some ways that companies contribute to anxiety? Yeah, you know, what, what a great question. Um, overload. Um, well, look, let's back up. The number one strategy is dealing with uncertainty. That is the number one cause of anxiety. So one of the things companies do badly is they don't communicate enough or often enough or in enough channels. You know, it, 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 there's still some old school managers out there. You know, it's on a need to know basis, Jeff, and you're never going to need to know. <laughs> right. Well, you know, uh, employees, particularly now, there's a lot of uncertainty. They want to know, how am I doing? Where are we? Where do we want to go? And how do I fit in that plan? So those are the questions you need to be constantly answering. And that comes with lots and lots of, of, of uh, information, lots of communication, and in different ways. Uh, town hall meetings, um, blast emails, uh, maybe you got a company Facebook platform. Those, those are ways that you communicate on a regular basis and consistently. 
And if you don't know the answer to the question, say, hey, I don't know. We're working on the answer. We'll get back to you. And then, by the way, get back to them. So, yeah, that's the first thing companies do badly. The second thing is overload. You know, they just keep piling it on and and say, look, you knew it was a high stress job when you took it and uh, you're on 24 seven. Well, yeah, that can work, you know, uh, short term. The problem is it doesn't work long term. So again, you know, what you and your company do so well, those little check-ins, how are we doing? Have you got enough resources to actually deliver on the promise? Do we, do we need to bring in more people? Do we need to, you know, what's going to cause you to miss this deadline, if anything, right? So I think those two things are, are things that companies tend to say, hey, we put it in the company newsletter. We've got the posters on the wall. What more do you want? Well, I, I need a little more than that, right? And secondly is the overload. We, we just, and, and we do it with our top performance because they never say no. So we keep piling it on. Absolutely. With organizations that do this really well, what's the ROI? Because you get the C-suite executives, they're looking at the financial implications if I'm a for-profit organization. What's the ROI that they see when they create cultures with psychological safety and resilience? Yeah, you know, uh, the great resignation, I'm sure you've heard so much about it, or the great reevaluation, you know, people have had time to really kind of figure out what's really important in my life. And uh, do I really want to go back to that job that uh, drove me crazy? Um, and so th th this idea that you've got to check in, that I've, I've got to feel safe, that I've, I've got to have that, um, that ROI at the end is leaders that will just listen. Uh, the, the numbers, you know, I think it was the Hay Group, if I'm not mistaken, said um, uh, managers that will listen uh, employees are 65% less likely to burn out, less likely to burn out. Those that don't uh, are two and a half times more likely to have people quit on them. So that matrix alone and turnover uh, should be incentive enough. The, the other benefit, of course, is, is now you've got anxiety levels are lower, engagement is higher, people are refreshed, they're innovative, and, and the, the return uh, is, is two times higher than companies that don't. So you, you say, how can we get a competitive advantage? Well, the competitive advantage is care about your people. Now, we've always known that. Now, now, now we've got a very specific thing that's going on that we can address and bring those, marshal all those tools, and it's around mental health and anxiety. Uh, Walmart Canada, Walmart US, their number one priority this year is mental health for their employees. And they talk about it all the time. Knowing that my company has made it the number one initiative, I can take a deep breath. I go, okay, well, I'm gonna put you to the test. When I'm overloaded, I'm gonna let you know. And, and now I wanna see what are you gonna do about it. And I can also contribute to a culture where we get really good at that. Exactly. And I can be an ally. I can be an advocate. When, when I see coworkers that are still afraid to talk about it, I can go and say, Listen, I've noticed that there's, there's a lot going on. You know, it happened to me too. I went to Nabila and boy, I got to tell you, the company will, they will live up to their promises. They did it for me. They'll do it for you. How great is that? It's fantastic. Becomes a place yeah. people are very attracted to work for. You bet. Uh, recruiting becomes much easier. Turnover goes down. There's so many great byproducts that result. So. Yeah. And, and you know what, Jeff? And, and I know you know this. I'm preaching the choir. It's just the right thing to it do. It goes back to the very you beginning know? of our conversation. 
It's just yeah. the right thing to do. You know, WD-40, their number one value is do the right thing. He says, and if you can't do that, none of the other values matter. <laughs> so do the right thing. And, and I, I, you know, as, as we're on this, this tangent here, I think leaders, those of you that are listening and, and coworkers, we have an obligation to each other. And I know this is going to sound a little weird. We have an obligation to send each other home happy. Now, why? Because of the ripple effect. You know that when you've had a hard day, when your opinion doesn't matter, people aren't listening to you, they're treating you like crap, they're giving you impossible deadlines and no resources to get it done. You're, you're frustrated and you're angry. And, and where do you take that? You take it home. And the ripple effect and how you treat your spouses and your partners and your kids and your pets, right? Yes. It's all negative. And the opposite is true. You have a great day where your voice was heard. You were involved in a great project. You had the resources to get it done. You had a, a customer that raved about your service. You go home and you are ready to embrace the most important part of your life. So University of California did a study. They said employees that are engaged and happy at work are 150% more likely to be happy and engaged in their personal lives. Wow. Game, set, and match. Yeah, it reminds me of a recent guest I just had on the podcast, Daniel Harkavy, who's the CEO of Building Champions, which is a coaching organization. He said his number one job every day is to, to turn on the light switch on people's hearts and that everybody has a light switch on their heart. And my, my job is to either turn it on. You can turn it on or you can turn it off. And so what you're describing, Chester, is the opportunity that we all have to turn that light switch on and the broad implications it has both at work and at home when we do it really well. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've interviewed Harkavy. He's amazing. And, and, and the guy, you just say, well, he gets it and then has executed on it and sees tremendous results. So yeah, after you've bought uh, Anxiety at Work and Leading with Gratitude and read those books, buy his book. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> fantastic. It should be on your shelf. Absolutely. No question. Okay. Let's switch to some lightning round questions. My first one is related to Thanksgiving, which is right around the corner. And you actually uh, wrote a book on this. You have an organization about it. So I would expect you to know the answer. What are you most grateful for? <laughs> you know, I, I am so grateful for so many things. I, I keep a gratitude journal and I write in it uh, almost every day. I give myself a little grace when I miss. And I, I, I'm just so grateful for the amazing people in my life. You know, Adrian Gostick, my co-author, so funny, right before we did this, we were talking, we were working through some stuff. And I said, Adrian, I just, I just don't want you to ever think I take our partnership for granted. You know, I keep a gratitude journal and I just want you to know how often your name shows up on my lists. And, and by the same token, you know, uh, my dad and I used to joke that the one thing we both had in common is we married uh, well above our station. <laughs> and and uh, my wife is, is my North Star and my, you know, Chancellor of the Exchequer. She's, uh, you know, she's my biggest cheerleader and, and wonderfully patient uh, with me. So two of the really important people, and I could go on and on, my, my, my kids, my grandkids and so on, but I am really grateful for being surrounded by amazing people. I've been truly blessed. What is the most difficult leadership lesson you've learned over your career? Uh, that you've got to make decisions uh, faster, uh, particularly on people. You know, uh, and Adrian and I have made that mistake uh, too often. We think we can work around somebody who's toxic. We can work around the situation. No, 
you know, give everybody the chance to, to buy into your system. I love Alan Mulally. We wrote a lot about him who saved the Ford Motor Company. He'd say, look, this is our culture and we really want you to buy in. And if you can't buy in, that's okay. I mean, it really is. If, you, if you're not going to get it, that's okay. You just can't work here anymore. And we will wish you well. He says, I've never fired anybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they <fire laughs> They've all self-selected. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, one of my toughest, because I, I think that people can be redeemed. I, I, you know, I always uh, hope against hope. And uh, in most cases, that's not the case. So uh, cut the cord uh, quicker, uh, sooner than later. Who's one person you would interview if you could, living or not? You know, I've had this question before and I've answered it badly every time. Uh, and I finally have come up with the right answer, uh, at least for me, is I'm the youngest son of the youngest son okay. in my family. And my grandfather, David Horton Elton, was a remarkable man. He was a lawyer. He ran newspapers. He was mayor of this little town in Southern Alberta, Lethbridge for eight years. He was a poet. He was an extraordinarily gifted public speaker. By the time I was uh, old enough to meet him, he was too old. And I would love to sit down with my grandpa and have him tell me his life story in his words. I mean, that to me would be such a gift. Mm, it'd be remarkable. What's the single most important thing you would want our human capital listeners to take away from our talk today, if you could distill it down to one or two things. Yeah, that you're not alone. I just love that message. You are not alone. There is always somebody that is cheering for you. And when you are in those uh, dark holes and those places that we all go to, the way to pull yourself out is know that you have people around you that care for you, that cheer for you, and they would do anything for you. All you have to do is ask. And I, and I get that asking is hard. We all want to serve. We don't want to be served. So let me share a context with you. That hopefully we'll make it easier. I, you know, Adrian and I do a lot of executive coaching and, and, and we coach CEOs and they've always got to be on. They can never have a bad day. And people, they say, I don't want to ask for help. I say, really, you don't. When people ask you for help, do you offer your help? I go, oh, I love serving. I go, how does it make you feel? It makes me feel great. It's great. Why would you cheat someone else out of that? Let them serve you. You will benefit and they will feel great. When people offer help or when you need help, please ask for it. Everybody wins. And I know that's hard. And yet it's the right thing to do. Such a great illustration. Thank you, Chester, so much for coming on the show today and sharing all these insights with us. Hey, you know, it's been a delight. Uh, clearly, you've done this before, Jeff. <laughs> I loved your questions. I love the flow. And hopefully a couple of things that we talked about today will, will benefit, uh, from, uh, benefit some people. Anxiety is the number one issue in the workplace today. We've got to figure it out. We've got to normalize, destigmatize, and empathize. And if we did that today, Jeff, we did some good work. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the show this week. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. Let me know what you thought of this episode by emailing humancapital at goalspan.com. Human Capital is produced by Goalspan. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this podcast with your colleagues, team, or friends. Thanks for being human, kind.